0: Good morning, family of God. God loves you. He has you here on purpose this morning. God wants to speak to you through his scriptures in a very personal way. Do you believe that, church? He loves you. If you've had a great week and you're feeling happy, he loves you. But also, I want to say especially if you're really hurting and frustrated and feel like nobody understands you, God loves you. He sees. He knows you. He understands. Sometimes we, even, even church people, love each other very imperfectly. Amen? <laughs> we hurt each other. We miss each other. But God loves you perfectly. and He knows you. And maybe some of you came focused, locked in, ready to hear the word. But maybe some of you are feeling very distracted. But it's going to be okay because God is not distracted. He's very focused on you. He loves you and He wants to speak to you this morning. So I want to invite you just to bow your heads with me one more time. We've been praying, but I just want to be quiet and still. And where you are, ask the Holy Spirit to speak to you and to give you ears to hear the word of God and a heart to receive it today. Our Father in Heaven, we thank you that you loved us and created us before we ever thought of worshiping you. Jesus, we thank you that you laid down your life for us on the cross. And Holy Spirit, you are our teacher, our comforter, and our guide. God, we worship you. And I ask, God, that you would be our teacher this morning. Help us to hear. Help us to understand. Help us to remember. Help us to be attentive. Would you help me to communicate your word clearly and accurately and with empowering from your spirit and let each of us receive it in a spirit of faith and surrender to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, the Bible teaches very clearly, emphatically, and even repetitively that Jesus is the greatest peacemaker in the history of the world. For example... If you were here about six weeks ago, it was Christmas season, Christmas time. And we were all reading the stories of the birth of Jesus and some angels appeared to some shepherds to announce the birth of Jesus and the sky lit up with a great company of the heavenly hosts. And you may recall what they saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, what on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Jesus was born to bring God's peace to his people. The Apostle Paul frequently reflects on this theme that Jesus is the greatest peacemaker in the world. I'm going to read a couple examples to you. Um, I'm going to go too fast for you to probably flip around, but you might jot down these references to study them later this week. And you can just listen for right now. Ephesians 2 talks a lot about Jesus as the great peacemaker. Listen to verses 14 through 16. It says, Christ has made peace between Jews and Gentiles. And he has united us by breaking down the wall of hatred that separated us. Christ gave his own body to destroy the law of Moses with all its rules and commands. He even brought Jews and Gentiles together as though we were only one person when he united us in peace. Everybody say peace. On the cross, Christ did away with our hatred for each other. He also made peace between us and God by uniting Jews and Gentiles in one body. So the text is saying Jesus came to make peace between us and God and to make peace between Jews and Gentiles, which is to say all the different ethnic groups on the world. He came to make peace, we could say vertically, by reconciling sinners to God and forgiving us and horizontally by teaching us how to love one another. Or we could go to Colossians chapter one, verses 19 through 20, which says, for in him that is in Jesus All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. By dying on the cross, Jesus made peace. And Paul defined what that means in this text by saying Jesus came to reconcile all things to himself in heaven and on earth, visible things and invisible spiritual things. Jesus is the great peacemaker. So when we read in Matthew chapter five, verse nine, that Jesus said to his disciples, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God. He was teaching us that we, as his disciples, are called to imitate him and participate with him in his peacemaking ministry. So everybody say Jesus is the peacemaker. And we could keep going. We could talk about Old Testament passages prophesying that the Messiah would come to bring God's shalom, God's peace to the earth, which are fulfilled by Jesus. We could talk about all the scriptures that say things like the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. And Jesus is bringing the fulfillment of that. But I want to just start by making the point Jesus is the greatest peacemaker in the history of the world, which forces us to notice uh, there's a certain tension here that our text brings to the surface. You just heard The last few verses of Luke chapter 12 read to you, including verse 51. Look at it again. This is Jesus talking. Jesus, the one that we just said, the whole Bible, and emphatically and repetitively says he's the greatest peacemaker in the history of the world. In verse 51, Jesus says, do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. There's a certain tension there, isn't it? What what could that mean? What is Jesus saying to us today? Did the angels get it wrong? Did the apostle Paul get it wrong? The answer is no. Okay. When it seems like one part of the Bible. Here's just a rule of thumb. When it seems like one part of the Bible is contradicting another part of the Bible. That just means we haven't understood it yet. Because God's word is all true. So how do these things fit together? I'm going to try to give you a. Simple answer Then I'm going to try to Explain it And put it in context Here's the simple answer Jesus is a Disruptive Peacemaker Jesus is a Disruptive Peacemaker That's Where the title Of my sermon comes today So everybody say Disruptive Everybody say Peacemaker The key idea here Is Sometimes In order To bring about true peace, you have to disrupt false peace. Remember, the prophet Jeremiah calling out the false prophets in his generation. He said their problem was, they said, peace, peace, when there was no peace. Sometimes the way things are. Feels very comfortable, and even if there's things we don't like about it and we want to complain about it, we don't want to lose the stability and the comfort and the predictability of the way things are. So, in order to have real peace, we have to get shook up to let go of the way things are, a false peace sometimes, in order to have true peace. We spent most of 2023 going through Luke's Gospel and Now after taking a little hiatus for a couple months, we are back. And just to remind you where you left off a couple months ago in chapter 12, Jesus is talking about the coming kingdom of God. And he'd been telling everybody, listen, God is at work in me and through me. That is through Jesus to bring his kingdom to the earth. That means he's going to set everything right. He's going to bring what is low and make it high. He's going to bring what is high and make it low. He's come to overthrow the powers of evil and reconcile people to God. Everything is changing and Jesus is calling us to wake up, to be alert, become attentive to what God is doing. And now in this context, he's saying what he's saying here. And the the point, I think, of verse 51 is that the arrival of Jesus forces a decision upon all of us. Either we accept him as Lord and Savior Which involves repenting. It involves dying to ourselves. It involves being disrupted in a great many ways. And by accepting him as Lord and Savior, we experience the peace that only he can give. Or we reject him and find ourselves aligned with the forces of darkness that oppose his kingdom. And many of us would like to keep a foot in each camp. Play it safe. Hedge our bets. But Jesus... Is not allowing that. He may be the greatest peacemaker in the world, but that doesn't mean he's non-confrontational. In fact, do you realize that the whole idea of peacemaking means that the current state of affairs is not peace? So the only way to make peace is to confront something? And sometimes the easiest way to change is when the current situation feels totally chaotic. But often the current bad situation feels at least ordered and predictable and comfortable. So I would venture to say that most peacemaking is disruptive peacemaking. Either Jesus forces us to say, either I'm with you or I'm against you. That's why he says radical things like, if you want to come after me, you've got to pick up your cross and follow me. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, reflecting on that reality, talks about when the God man confronts us, Jesus. Basically, we eventually only have two options. We can die, meaning we can die to ourselves to become a disciple of Jesus, or we can join the crowds that cry out, crucify him. Ultimately, it's going to be one of those two. And. Thus, either way, the arrival of Jesus has a disruptive force in our lives. He was certainly the most disruptive person who's ever lived in the history of the world. And whatever we choose about Jesus will, on one hand, draw us spiritually closer to some people, while on the other hand, moving us away from some people, causing some people who want to oppose Christ to oppose us. I want to track this idea throughout the passage, but first, I just want to invite you to think about this biblical principle of disruptive peacemaking Which comes to the surface here, but actually runs throughout the whole Bible. I want you to think about what it could look like at different layers of reality. First of all, think about the level of your individual life. Sometimes we say, God, give me your peace. You ever prayed and asked God for peace? Yes, I have. Yes, you have. But see, I would like to have peace under certain conditions. right? For example, I might be holding on to something that I really want. An idol, a relationship, a bad habit, a sin. And God may know there's no, there's no peace as long as that's there. But I'm holding on to it very tight, which means I need to be disrupted. No true lasting peace without repentance. God is committed to dethroning our idols. At the level of our individual lives, we know this is true. You've been there, haven't you? God Did something that you would have never willingly complied with, (laughs) but he did it in your life. He disrupted you, got you to a place where you were ready to surrender and experience the peace he wanted to give. But what about at higher levels or wider levels? Maybe we should say like the level of families. Maybe even generations. To talk about something real, real and uncomfortable for many of us. It can be disruptive and divisive to shine light on family secrets and generational sins, can it? It may lead to some division. It might disrupt a status quo which uh, is not good, but may feel preferable to the feeling of chaos that comes if you shine the light of truth and righteousness. But on the other hand, that may lead to very deep generational healing. At the level of community life, friendships, cities, local churches, maybe sometimes love means having some hard conversations in the spirit of grace so that we can pursue even deeper and sweeter community, relationship, friendship. Sometimes our relationships never mature to that 10, 20, 30, 40 year place that we want them to be because we don't want to deal with the conflict of speaking the truth in love, having hard conversations. Those with the very non-confrontational personalities are feeling uncomfortable right now. I'm sorry. Jesus started it. Okay. In church, we need to have hard conversations, not shy away from, seek unity that deals with truth, not sweeping stuff under the rug. At the level of society, cities, nations, geopolitics, this same principle holds true. Some of you knew I, I wrote my doctoral dissertation on the theology and practice of peacemaking. And one of the things that I learned in that process was that some of the great Christian peacemakers in the 20th century... John Perkins, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Martin Luther King Jr., Desmond Tutu, uh, Dorothy Day. We could just keep listing people. But almost all of them were called divisive. Isn't that interesting? People criticized them as divisive. Why are you creating tension? And they tended to say things like, tension was already here. We're bringing it to the surface so that healing can happen. You can think about Paul when he goes in the book of Acts to places like Philippi and Ephesus. I don't have time to go read the text right now, but sometimes he goes to the city proclaiming a gospel of peace and he, people are drawn to him and then 15 minutes later there's a big riot or a couple of weeks later and they throw him out of town, but the gospel was established in that community in a way that there became a community of peacemakers for a long time to come. The point here is that real peacemaking is very often disruptive. So everybody say disruptive peacemaking. Jesus, the greatest peacemaker in the history of the world, was gentle and lowly. That's what he said in Matthew 11. He was humble. He was kind. He was loving. But he was certainly not non-confrontational. He was a disruptive peacemaker. And this lens of disruptive peacemaking helps this whole passage to come into focus, actually. Let's walk through it, just from beginning to end, real quick. And notice what's happening here. In the context of talking about being ready, getting ready for the coming kingdom of God, Jesus says in verse 49, I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. In scripture, fire is a a common symbol. It's usually associated in one way or another with God's holiness, God's holy love. It can be holy judgment wrath towards evil or it can be holy grace that comes to purify God's people both of those are present in the book of Luke and the acts also written by Luke he talks about the fire of judgment but he also talks about the fire of the holy spirit who comes to purify God's people Jesus comes Then he's saying with love and justice to set things right in a world marred by sin. But renewing creation and making peace requires defeating evil and purifying our hearts. And Jesus says, that's what I came to do. I came to defeat evil and to purify a holy people for God. Through his teaching, through his death on the cross, through his resurrection, through the moment of Pentecost, where he's going to pour out the Holy Spirit from his throne in heaven and the, the Holy Spirit is going to descend like fire on God's people in Acts chapter 2. Through all of that, he's exposing and overcoming evil and consuming it and purifying people in his love. And he wants, he wants to do it because he wants the world made right. Don't you want a new creation? Wouldn't you love to see a world that's filled with God's peace? Just sometimes we don't like that process. So for me, the question this week, as I've been meditating on this passage, is, uh, do I want Jesus to purify me? Do you want Jesus to purify you? Or we could just switch it this way. What does Jesus want to purify in your heart today? And the key question is, do you, do I trust his wisdom and love? My prayer this week um, was, Jesus, purify my heart. And then I I just went ahead and connected Matthew 11 with Luke 12 and said, please be gentle with me while you're doing it. I would recommend that. Purify my heart, Jesus. I want intimacy with you. I want to be as much like you as I can. Be gentle with me. You know my weakness, but purify my heart. He only purifies his kids for for their own good because he loves us. Verse 50, Jesus says, I have a baptism to be baptized with. And how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Don't have time to go into all the little exegetical details here, but the baptism here is almost certainly referring to Jesus coming, suffering and death on the cross. That's what he's talking about. Already, when we read the story of Jesus being baptized by John the Baptist, if you can remember back that far. Last year we read that story and we talked about that already there, the, the picture of water is a picture of God judging our sin and then rising us out of that judgment, cleansed and purified. Think about the story of Noah's Ark, the waters of judgment. And Jesus is saying, I'm about to go under the waters of judgment for real. I'm going to die on the cross. Jesus freely giving his life for our salvation on the cross is the greatest act of disruptive peacemaking in history. That's it. It was confrontational. He exposed the powers of evil. He exposed the depths of our sin. He exposed the lies of the culture. But he did it in a way that sought our redemption and reconciliation and healing, not our defeat. Listen again to, to what I read you a moment ago from Colossians 1, 19 through 20. For in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. The cross is about peacemaking, but it's a disruptive peacemaking. Jesus came to shatter the present world order because the status quo is not okay. He came to dethrone false gods of the present evil age. And he calls us to salvation and peace, but we must be shattered in order to be resurrected. He's very clear about that to his disciples. Pick up your cross and follow me. If you love your life, you'll lose it. If you lose your life for my sake, you'll find it. If the world were less broken and if we were less broken, it would not need something as dramatic As the immortal God clothing himself with our mortality so that he could die in our place. But the false peace of this dark world. And the darkness in us is of such an extreme nature. That God in his love had went to extreme measures. To disrupt this false peace and save sinners so he can be reconciled to God. Let's skip down to verses 52 through 53. We already talked about 51. 52 through 53. Let's read them again. For from now on in one house, there will be five divided. Three against two and two against three. They will be divided. Father against son and son against father. Mother against daughter and daughter against mother. mother Mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. I do feel like we should clarify. There are other ways to divide your family besides radical discipleship. So we need to correctly diagnose, right? Some of us... Just need to go repent and ask for forgiveness in our families. But here Jesus is making the point that if you get really serious about following Jesus on a path of truth and righteousness, that can bring division to families and friends and friend groups and churches and communities. And some of you have really felt that. You've experienced that and you are experiencing it in an ongoing way. It's very painful, and Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you. He's going to heal, and when Jesus returns in glory to set all things right, not only is he going to vindicate you, but listen, friends, not only your relationship with God, but all your human relationships are going to be set right for eternity. Aren't you glad about that? And you don't have to choose between a false peace and estrangement for eternity. Real peace, real reconciliation. And again, that decision to follow Jesus, as painful as it can be, may be a step that just feels like it is unleashing division and chaos. But it's making peace in a way that can have generational ramifications. Deep healing. Keep going. Verses 54 through 56. He also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once a shower is coming. And so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say there will be scorching heat. And it happens. You hypocrites. Hypocrite is a play actor, a faker, someone who isn't real, a pretender. You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky. But why do you not know how to interpret present time. The people to whom Jesus was speaking were weather conscious people. And I read some commentaries that explained all the stuff about the topography and the Sea of Galilee and the clouds and the wind. And we, we don't really need to know all that. Here's what you need to know. If you're a shepherd or a fisherman, you pay attention to weather. If you're a farmer, you pay attention to weather. So in their particular context, they knew how to look at the signs and If you're out on the Sea of Galilee and you see a certain kind of cloud, and every time you see that kind of cloud, 120 minutes later, there's a crazy storm that could sink your ship. You go as fast as you can back to the shore. You know what's coming and you react accordingly. But Jesus is talking to people who, for the most part, had familiarity with the scriptures. People who believed in God and God had foretold them to them. What the signs of his coming kingdom were going to be. And Jesus came and started doing all of those things. He opened the eyes of the blind. He opened the ears of the deaf. The deaf. He healed sick people. He raised dead people back to life. He proclaimed good news to the poor. He cleansed lepers. All the things that uh, Jesus, that the scripture said he was going to do. Jesus is doing it. In a very public way. And he's casting out demons. And he's proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching people. And now there's crowds flocking to them, but they're all trying to stand with one foot in and one foot out. They're skeptical. They're still testing him. They're evaluating. And he's saying, you are play acting. All the signs are in front of you. And I, he's saying to them, Jesus is saying, I'm the king. I'm God. I've come to usher in the age of salvation that you've been looking for. The only reason you're still asking skeptical questions is because you don't want to repent and let go of your idols. Stop pretending. Stop pretending. He came to disrupt their false peace and ours in order to give them real peace with God and to give us peace with God because he loves us. So once again, this is a message that's very relevant for us. I've said a couple times lately, I don't know when Jesus is coming back. Today would be wonderful, don't you think? He could come back today. He could come back this week. And the more you read the Bible, the more you start noticing there's passages that are like, he's probably going to come back today. And then there's other passages that are like, maybe a million years. Which taken together, give the church a call to perpetual readiness, perpetual urgency, and patience, long-term thinking, wait for the Lord. Generational thinking. But there is urgency for us today. And Jesus is saying, pay attention. Are you awake? What would you do differently if you knew Jesus was coming back in February of 2024? God is disrupting false peace to establish true peace today in the world. Even if Jesus doesn't come back for another thousand years. His kingdom is advancing in the world. He's bringing low what is high and lifting up what is low. And the question for each of us is, am I ready to repent and participate willingly in this process, even if it means I need to keep getting disrupted over and over? Or am I foolishly trying to resist God's process of disrupting peacemaking in my life? Just encourage you to ask God that right now. Holy Spirit, make us willing to participate, to open ourselves To the gracious disruptions you might be bringing in our hearts. Last verses here, 57 through 59. Jesus says, and why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge. And the judge hand you over to the officer and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. The image here is debtor's prison. Debtor's prison is terrible. terrible. To clarify, Jesus does not approve of debtor's prison. Jesus says lots of things about generous, being generous to the poor. And if you lend to somebody, don't demand back what you lent to them. But he's drawing on a practice that was common in the time period to make another point. And here's the way debtor's prison worked. You take out a loan. In today's terms, you're going to buy a car. You've got a car note. And, or a student loan. Or something like that. You take out a mortgage on a house. And some folks know that if you get a little behind on that, today you get some text messages, don't you? Some phone calls. Somebody might knock on your door if it's getting serious. Um, Or your car might get impounded. There's like a reality TV show about doing that, right? The Repo Man or something like that. Um, Now imagine if instead of that, they came and threw you in prison in a jail, a dirty jail cell. I said, you stay here until that $5,000 car note is paid off. That was what happened. It's not easy to pay off a car note from jail, is it? So many people died in debtor's prison. But they figure at that point, you're going to pull every string you have. Friends, family, whatever you need to do. And so Jesus is making a point. If somebody is... If you has been coming to you for that car payment this whole time for six months and they've been getting more and more serious. And now they came with the officer and they're taking you to court to the magistrate. And, you know, you're about to get thrown into debtor's prison until that five thousand dollars disappears. Now, all of a sudden, you have a very urgent desire to be reconciled, don't you? And you're going to start stop playing around and you're going to say, tell you what. I have exactly four hundred and eighty-three dollars at home. I will give all of that to you right now, and then I get paid again in five days, thousand dollars. I'm going to give you that, and I'm going to come to your orchard this week and work for free all week. This week, you're going to start. You're not negotiating anymore, right? You're just ready to do whatever you need to do to get thrown in that place because you know once you're there, you're staying there until everything gets paid off. That's the metaphor. So then the question here is, what what is the parable? What is it about here? It's interesting if you go to Matthew chapter five and verses 23 through 26, Jesus says something almost identical to that. And in that context, it's very clear that Jesus is talking about what we call horizontal reconciliation. He's saying, get right with people, get right with people before it's too late. If you've wronged somebody, take the initiative to go apologize. He says in that context, if you're going to the altar to worship God and remember that you've wronged somebody, your first act of worship is go get right with that person, then come to the altar. Horizontal reconciliation. But in this context, he doesn't quite specify in everything about the context here in Luke chapter 12. Seems to indicate that he's drawing on that same analogy. But here he's talking primarily about what we were calling vertical reconciliation. Get right with God before it's too late. This is how the earliest Christians in their commentaries on Luke consistently interpreted this passage. And they wrestled with it was clear. God is the judge. God's the judge. Right. That's true in the Bible. But they wrestled with who's the accuser. If you go read a bunch of ancient Christian commentaries on this text, you'll hear people saying different things. Satan is the accuser. He's the accuser of the saints. Some will say the law of God, his commandments are your accuser, is your accuser because it exposes your sin. Some will say your conscience is your accuser because you know what you've done is wrong. And I would say all three work great for this. Satan, in fact, is your accuser. Satan is happy to tell God about all the bad things you've done. And the problem is. He's right. You have done a lot of bad things, haven't you? The word of God is good and pure and holy. It's life to our souls. But if you read that thing seriously, like do not commit adultery. Just think about the Ten Commandments for a second. You may think, well, I haven't committed adultery in a while. But then Jesus is telling us all those commandments are about the heart. He said, if you look at a person with lustful intent, you've already committed adultery in your heart. Or those Ten Commandments, what do they say? Don't steal. Don't kill. You say, I haven't murdered murdered anybody. It's been a while since I robbed a bank, whatever you might be thinking. But Jesus again brings it down to the heart. We've all been willing to hurt people because they got in the way of what we wanted. Don't covet your neighbor's house or their land or their dog or their truck or their wife or any of that stuff. Now, that one started in the heart, didn't it? And so when we're honest with ourselves, our consciences tell us we have sinned, we've got an accuser. And the thing is, we do have a great debt. So what is Jesus's advice as you go with your accuser before the magistrate? Make an effort to settle with him on the way. Make an effort to settle with him on the way. What does that mean? Repent? Does it mean repent? Well, yeah, it does mean repent. Jesus wants us all to repent. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus has said. Everybody say repent. But we've got to think carefully about this because if I start repenting and doing a lot of good works and making sure I'm trying to take care of the poor and saying my prayers every day and doing all those things and trying to stack up good works on the good side of this ledger... Could a lifetime of that wipe out the sin? And the scripture says, if you broke even one of those laws, you're a lawbreaker. Lifetime of good works. Could not wipe it out. Debt is one of Luke's favorite words for sin. Forgive us our debts. As we forgive our debtors. You know, I didn't even tell them to sing Jesus Paid It All today. The worship team. Who was picking worship songs this month? Good job. Whoever that was, how do you settle? Well, the person who just said, I came to throw fire on the earth also just said, I have a baptism to be baptized with. And more that it had already happened. In other words, Jesus is saying to everybody, I am going to the cross to pay your debts in full. Trust me. Trust me. That's how you get right with God. You can never balance the ledger. For yourself, but you don't have to because Jesus did it for you. What is the cross? The cross is Jesus paying the price for all the wicked things I have done and all the wicked things you have done. And Colossians, same letter that we've quoted a couple of times, talking about Jesus making peace by the blood of his cross, says that the record of our debts was nailed to the cross. Isn't that good news, church? He says, before you go stand before the judge, recognize the judge already came here and paid the price. He paid your debt. And all you got to do is trust him. Take the receipt. Trust Jesus. Trust Jesus. Get right with God. And you will be reconciled to God. But there's urgency to this. It means saying, Jesus... You're my only hope, and your love is perfect, and I surrender to you, and today I trust you. Listen, friend, if you came to church today not right with God, this is how you get right with God. Just trust Jesus today. Surrender to Jesus today. Don't try and keep one foot in the kingdom of Jesus and one foot in some other place. Step both feet into the kingdom. You say, yeah, but he's going to disrupt my life. And that is correct. That's what this whole sermon has been about, right? He is going to disrupt your life, but you have to decide, do I want to die in false peace alienated from God and from other people by my sin? Or do I want to open myself to the work of grace? Let him do whatever he wants, because I want the true peace that only Jesus can give. That's the invitation. Church, I'm almost done, but I want you just to think for a second today. God wants to do peacemaking work through us in the world. God wants to do peacemaking work through you in the world. And as I look across this room, I see a lot of beautiful peacemakers in your families, in your neighborhoods, in your workplace, workplace, out at apartment complexes, around your ministry team or celebrate recovery or whatever it is that you're doing. I see you working for peace. Don't you love this church? Everybody turn around to your neighbor and say, good peacemaking. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God. Look, I like the young people, all the future world changer peacemakers in this sanctuary. But here's the thing. In order to do this work that Jesus has called us to do with integrity, we first need to let Jesus do his peacemaking work in us over and over and over again. And that means we need to let him disrupt us. Everybody say disruptive peacemaking. We need to let him do that work continually. It's a daily process. Jesus and the Holy Spirit working in us. Theological word for it is sanctification. Our half of that equation is just repentance, 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 repentance. But listen, repentance doesn't have to be a bad word. Some of us, when we hear repent, we hear you're bad, you're worthless. When I hear repent over time, the more I've walked with Jesus, the more I'm recognizing somebody who loves me wants to set me free and he's trying to break another chain. That's what repentance is. Somebody who loves me is wanting to set me free and he's wanting to break another chain right now. He already loved me. The onion of my sin has many layers. I haven't seen Shrek in many years, but now I got donkey in my ear. Talking about parfaits being delicious, but work with me on this analogy. The the onion of my sin has many layers. And it's sort of like when you're a new believer, you think... Oh man, I'm really greedy and I've been really selfish and talked back to my mom and I cussed a lot. And then I got saved. It's like, man, it so, feels so good to be done sinning. And then two, three, four, five years happen. Pressures of life squeezed up to the surface and you find layer four of your sin, right? But here's the thing. You haven't even seen layer 56 of your sin. Jesus died on the cross for you and loved you and reconciled you to God, knowing all the way about layer 489 of your sin, right? And he accepted you when you trusted in him and were baptized in his name. He accepted you as a child of God. And what we're talking about is Jesus peeling more layers to make you more free. To make you more free. The disruptions of Jesus are gifts of grace. His holy fire for us is the purifying fire of perfect love. So we need to ask, do you trust Jesus? Jesus. That the disruptions of Jesus in your life are always for your good. That his invitation to repentance is always an invitation to joy and intimacy with God. Is he trustworthy? The cross shows us how much he loves us. The resurrection shows us he has the power and wisdom to bring new life from the shadow of death. Perfect love, perfect power. He says, I want to make you free. I want to heal you. He's trustworthy. He's trustworthy. That's the point. I'm going to say a prayer for us, and then here's what I would love to do. Um, The worship team is going to come to lead us in another song of worship. Um, But if you need to stay seated and journal some things, you can do that. If you want to come up to the altar, you can do that. I'm going to come pray on the altar because... All week, I'm just assuming there's some stuff that Jesus wants to disrupt in my life. And if you feel like, man, there's some stuff Jesus wants to call me to a deeper level of freedom and intimacy with God. We just want to make a space to come up to the front and kneel, get in a posture of humility before God physically and just pray to him. Or if you just want to stand up and sing the song, that's another way to do the same thing, to open your heart to God. And I want to pray that we as a people will know the love of God enough. To let him do over and over and over again what needs to be done in our lives, in our church, in our families, in our community. So that we can know his true peace. Would you bow with me? Last last thing, let me say as your head's bowed. If there's something stirring in your heart that's deep, you need to talk to God about it. But I would encourage you to also come talk to somebody else about it. I would be delighted to talk to you. There's other pastors here or if there's a family member or friend in Christ that you want to talk to. uh, Just feel free to do that. Our father in heaven, we are so thankful for your great love. And very often we we like the passages better where Jesus says, I'm gentle and lowly in heart and I will give you rest for your souls. than the one where he says, I came to cast fire on the earth. But we thank you that your love is a real love. It's an authentic love, not a fake love. And so you uh, do for us and in us the hard work that needs to be done for us to be really free. And we talked about some hard things in this sermon. It may be that some old wounds are stirred up. There's some hurt in this room. And I just pray that whatever is going on in people's lives right now, your Holy Spirit would pour out grace and an assurance of your perfect love. You love everyone here. I pray that we would completely surrender to the process of healing that you want to do in each of our lives. Holy Spirit, help us now. Thank you for your ministry of healing. Jesus, we worship you. Thank you for giving us peace with God, peace with one another. And as that process of peacemaking can be painful and difficult, we thank you for your gentleness with us. So here we are, Lord. We praise you do your work in us, whatever it takes. In Jesus' name.